0: So the term spiritual warfare gets tossed around a lot in popular culture. There's this image of angelic beings and, uh, and devilish demons appear in the clouds. They're, you know, brandishing swords and shields and whips and their horses and there's fire and flames and light, right? And the special effects kind of laden pictures that have come out in the last few years like Constantine or Hellboy, the type of popular culture of this is what the spiritual world looks like. Um, and it's called spiritual warfare. Good versus evil. If, if there is a clearer picture of what real spiritual warfare looks like in the Bible, um, I, a clearer picture than what we see here with Jesus, I don't, I don't know where it is. In this passage, in Matthew, we find Jesus after the glory of his revelation as the Son of God, before the people surrounding John's ministry, John the Baptist's ministry, he, you know, he's lifted up and, and this, this popular preacher points to him and says, it's the Son of God! And everyone's excited. And then he immediately goes out in the middle of a desert, where it's hot and it's dry And he just kind of exposes himself to the elements for 40 days and 40 nights, the scripture says. And when he's at his physically weakest point, we're told the devil comes to him. For all the reality of the devil, he doesn't show up very many times in scripture in the flesh. Uh, In just a few places, we find him in the garden with Eve. We find him... um, (laughs) Tormenting Job in the book of Job. And we find him here. Confronting Jesus. And he comes to Jesus at his very weakest. And he starts by pointing out his hunger. Right? Jesus hadn't eaten for 40 days. None of us have probably ever gone for 40 days without food. Jesus is beyond hungry. And the devil kind of saunters up and says, Hey, you've got all the power in the universe. Just command these stones to become bread. Take a bite. The devil looks at him and says, You are moments away from satisfying that hunger. But it was a trap. And Jesus even in his weakened state, recognized that it was a trap. And he responds, starting with three words, it is written, man does not live through consuming food by itself, but the words of God nourish us. Jesus clung to the written word of scripture that he would have heard as a boy. As his consciousness opened up and expanded, and as he learned, as the Bible teaches us, he would have heard this thought, soaked it in. The word of God will nourish me. And so after he appealed to his hunger, he then appealed to his pride, right? It said he takes him up to the top of the, the temple, he takes him to the highest pinnacle. And he says, toss yourself down. You know, right in front of all these worshipers, all these people gathered to have an experience of who God is. Throw yourself down right here, right now. And then he quotes scripture, right? The devil heard Jesus quote scripture to him. So he's like, I can do it right back, right? I've read the Bible once or twice. He says, I know of a couple scriptures that say God will supernaturally protect you. You're the Messiah. You're not going to hit the ground if you jump off. Angels will appear and they'll grab you. And by implication, what will all the people see? Right? That this traveling prophet really is the Son of God with angels at his beck and call. He appeals to Jesus' pride. And again, Jesus responds, starting with three words. It is written. Don't test God. Don't put him to the test. In a sense, Jesus is saying, don't be foolish with the word of God. And after appealing to Jesus' pride failed, he appeals to his greed. He takes him up to the tallest mountain and he shows him all the world. I don't know if he hands him some binoculars. You know, I don't know if there's this weird zoom in, zoom out special effect. Um, I don't know if it's just like, you know, Simba's dad up on the hill, all oh, that the light touches. You know, I don't, I don't know what the exact picture is. But the, the idea is, is he, he takes Jesus to a point where he can see all the people of all the world and all the places and Satan says, I'll give it all to you. No cross, no suffering, no three years of talking to people who won't listen to you. I'll give it to you now if you'll just worship me. And again, Jesus responds with three words. Again, this is Jesus in his weakest state. Where he feels the weight of what it is that he has to do. Right? And he's just been convinced by 40 days of the elements in the middle of inhospitable desert that he was going to face the hardship of his ministry as a man. Right? But he says it is written, it's written, worship only the Lord your God, no one else. No one else. This is spiritual warfare on display. The God of the universe made a man in the middle of the desert doing spiritual battle with the devil himself. And yet, time and time again, Jesus doesn't appeal to his own authority. He doesn't appeal to his own wisdom. He doesn't call upon, you know, he never once looks at the devil and says to him, you know, I was there when you fell from heaven. You know, which he, we get the idea he says elsewhere in scripture. Like he was there to see the devil like fail in his rebellion against God. He doesn't look at him and say, Look, devil, you lost. I was there. Why are you even here? We're in the midst of the victory dance. Instead of responding with his own authority or with his own special knowledge, instead of like calling to Michael the archangel and saying, Get him, you know, (laughs) chase him away, he leans on scripture. For all his hunger and all his weakness, he doesn't use any special power that any one of us wouldn't have in the moment. His response three times is, it is written, the God-man himself leaning on scripture. Part of me feels like I could just end the sermon there, right? Right? And just say, if it's good enough for Jesus, like if Jesus himself at his weakness leaned on scripture as authoritative and powerful and wonderful, then who do we think we are? Who do we think we are to ignore it or to pretend that there's some equal wisdom that we could have that would measure up to it? Part of me thinks that we could just stop here and I could say, go, read the Bible, trust it, use it. But history has taught us um, that this is a subject on which we have to think about more deeply. So I'm going to avoid a lecture today, but as we talk about the principle of Scripture alone, Sola Scriptura, as the Latin-speaking, you know, uh, Reformation scholars would have said. As we talk about that idea, how does it get to the place where we lean on it so heavily? Okay, so we've talked about the temptation of Jesus. And here for a moment, I want to talk about the temptation of another man. A man named uh, Martin Luther. How many of you guys have heard of the guy, Martin Luther? Um, I want to get this out of the way. Martin Luther is not Jesus, remotely. Um, in, in, for real, Martin Luther's a hot mess, right? From his youth, he's troubled. And as he gets older, he becomes plagued by doubt. He's fearful of the judgment of God. He's scared to death of the devil. Like, he, had, he, he, he recounted uh, in, his, in his diaries that, like, he... he had battles with the devil right you know he the devil would appear to him and he'd argue with him this was a man who was plagued by doubt plagued by guilt fearful but yet was pursuing and seeking god in his weakness so again martin luther not jesus by a long shot but a man who desperately desired to know jesus more Um, A man who desperately wanted to be able to do something with his guilt that he felt. And so he eventually abandons, after this kind of negotiation he has with God in a thunderstorm, he abandons the thought of becoming a lawyer, which is what his parents really wanted for him, and he pursues uh, becoming a monk, becoming a priest, going off to a monastery, living the life of a celibate who studies and chases after God. And he becomes a a great scholar. He's a good student. Um, He especially excels in his studies of Greek. Um, At this time in the church, um, most people had only Latin translations of the New Testament and of the the Old Testament. Um, But trade had expanded into different parts of the world. And so Greek New Testaments began to flow from what we call the Byzantine Empire into the West. And he became a quick student of Greek. And as he compared his Latin Bible to his Greek Bible in his seminary classes, as he sought to become a priest, he started noticing differences here and there. Small ones at first, just slightly different nuances on words. But some of those had huge implications for what he believed. And if that wasn't enough, the world was in complete political turmoil. Um, (laughs) At the time, the head of the Roman Catholic Church, the Pope, wielded not just religious control, but actual real political control throughout much of the world. Um, Had the power to appoint princes, to appoint kings. And the church was in a state where it was dead broke, and so it became a process of trying to bring in more income through taxation and through the sale of what's called indulgences. This is, by the way, the dirty laundry of the church. Like, if, if we all stand in continuity with the church throughout church history, like, this is, this, these are the skeletons in our closet. At one point, the church in the West is led by a group of people who, in the desire to have more money and political influence, decide to levy heavy taxes against folks in faraway nations so that Christians in Germany were taxed so that the money would be sent to Italy to help the political stability in Italy. Imagine for a moment, if you can, uh, you're up here as a nice American, and all of a sudden some powerful person over in England, right, says, uh, more taxes on your tea, right? Right? What happens? If you're a student of American history, war happens, right? And so you have this same kind of tension in the world at the time, where the religious leaders uh, were attacking the finances of people very far away, and beyond that, they were selling indulgences. Anybody here ever, like, seen one of those cartoons of hell? Like the fire leaps up, and they're like skeletons dancing around, and the devil comes out with a pitchfork and like pokes some guy in the butt. Like that's the picture of hell. And then if you get into even more like graphic descriptions, like they often did in medieval times, like torture devices were described, pain that you can't imagine. And there are men who would travel around and say, the, the church has a special deal for you, for the low price of 1995." You too can avoid the rack and pinion in the bowels of hell. Not only that, but you know that loved one that died a couple of months ago, and you know they had a little bit of a boozy problem, you know they drank too much. You can get them, they're in the Iron Maiden right now. The devil is wringing the screams out of them right now. And you can free them for the low price of $39.95. The church was a mess. It was horrifically corrupt. Even modern Catholic scholars today look back at the time and are like, yeah, probably not good. And Martin Luther, a man fearful and plagued by guilt and doubt, starts to find differences in his Greek New Testament and his Latin New Testament. He's upset about the sale of indulgences And so he decides to start a friendly academic debate. He comes up with 95 theses, that's basically 95 uh, doctrines that he's like, really? This? Do we really believe this? And he nails it to the door of the Castle Church in Wittenberg um, with the intention of having an academic debate with his fellow professors. No one knows who, but someone tore the thing off the door and went and made copies. And before long, uh, modern day Germany was set on fire. Before Martin Luther realized what had happened, a uh, full revolution was pretty much in swing. Down with the church, up with Germany, basically. And after a couple of years, Martin Luther has written several pamphlets and he's eventually drugged before the church authorities at this thing called the Diet of Worms, or verms, if you're doing the nice pronunciation. He's basically brought on trial. And at some point, he's brought before all the things that he's written about Scripture and about the church, all the things that he is convinced are true, and they point to the stuff on the table, and they basically tell him, recant, say it was all a lie, say it wasn't true, or we're going to kill you. Like, those were the stakes. We are going to kill you. And he responds. He's more wordy than Jesus, so he doesn't keep it to three. This is a longer quote. But I'm going to read a quote from Martin Luther. This is Martin Luther's response to recant of all these things. He says, unless I'm convinced by the testimony of Holy Scriptures or by evident reason for, uh, for I can believe neither Pope nor Councils alone as it's clear that they've erred repeatedly and they've contradicted themselves. I consider myself convicted by the testimony of Holy Scripture, which is my basis. My conscience is captive to the Word of God. Thus I cannot and will not recant Because acting against one's own conscience is neither safe nor sound. God help me. Amen. And so he stands before this trial and he says, unless you can show me in scripture where I'm wrong, or unless you can show me that I'm crazy, right, that I just my reasons off, and my language is misunderstood and le- but really unless you can show me by scripture that my doctrines wrong I have to follow scripture I can't recant I can't say it's all a lie scripture binds my conscience again Luther was not Jesus he was full of flaws and contradictions himself like he contradicted himself He was by no means perfect. But at the core of his refusal to do the easy thing, to just say, no, I didn't mean it. I take it back. I'd like to live. At the core of that were the same three words. It is written. This is what the book says. I can't take it back. I can't change it. Our faith and our practice must be held captive by Scripture. So that frames the context of our discussion of Scripture alone. And the question can come up why talk about this? It's been 500 years. This is an old fight. Why bring it up now? The truth is that if we look at the world, the world is deeply divided among those who call themselves Christians, right? In the East, among the Greeks and into Asia, you have the Eastern Orthodox Church um, that split off from one church um, after about 1,000 years. And then to the West, you have the Roman Catholics who still practice um, a form of Catholicism, even though it's somewhat different than what was practiced in, in uh, Luther's day. And then you have those called Protestants, where a thousand different denominations in a thousand different places with a thousand different distinctions. So as you look at the scope of Christianity across the world, there are deep divisions which remain. And so as the world thinks about what it is to be a Christ follower, they have to try to figure out, well, who are these people, right? So if we ignore the distinctions in the history, someday someone's going to come up and be like, so what's the difference? Why are you what you, you know? And you're just kind of like, I don't know. Man, I just want to go to work today. Can you not ask me hard questions, right? It hurts our witness if we aren't actually aware of what's going on in our global family. It hurts us. And then there are also local realities. Several of you work for the school system, uh, Locally. This is just the best example I can give. Local issues, such as should there be a second high school? What should we do with public schools? How should taxes be raised? Have been fought along these lines. Um, Jeff City has a large Protestant population and a large Catholic population, and they, by and large, don't send their kids to the same schools. And so, when the issue of taxes comes up, Protestants tend to be in favor of improving our schools, historically, and historically, Catholics in Jeff City have been like, no thank you, we have a perfectly functioning high school. And so, there have been battles fought that started with Luther and have trickled down 500 years into our city on these issues. If we call ourselves Christians and we seek to, to love this city, we can't be ignorant of the things that divide us. There are local dynamics that we care about. So the question might come up, um, so what are you saying, Tony? Are you saying we're supposed to hate Catholics? It's us versus them and they keep screwing stuff up? What's wrong with them? Should we grab the pitchforks? I don't know if any of you actually own a pitchfork, um, but I am not saying... Uh, I'm not saying that we should hate Catholics. Don't, for a million years, hear me saying that. The principle of seeing Scripture alone as ultimate authority in the church was very much born from the death of the medieval Roman Catholic Church. And I say the death of the medieval Roman Catholic Church because in many ways, the Catholic Church today is not the church of Luther's day. They've had their own reforms. Um, So The principle of sola scriptura did come out of that fight. But seeing scripture alone as our primary authority for our faith is about much more than our disagreements with Catholics. It's about much more than our disagreement with popes or bishops. Why talk about this? Because of another principle that comes out of the Reformation. Again, because they liked Latin back then. Semper Reformanda. Always reforming. Always reforming. This idea that the church is always liable to corruption, and so we must always be looking to Scripture, always be willing to change, always be willing to confront ourselves and our errors. Why do we lean on this principle? Not because we hate Catholics, right? Right? We lean on it because we need it in our own churches. So what do we mean by Scripture alone? I've said it a thousand times. What do we we really mean by it? What I mean is this. Scripture alone for Christians is to be the final authority. It is the supreme court of doctrinal debates. There are no more appeals once you've gone to Scripture. It is the Word of God. God has spoken. Here it is. If you and I disagree, we go to the scripture and there's no higher court to appeal to. What we mean by scripture alone is it is the final authority for Christians. But here's what I don't mean by scripture alone. I don't mean that it's the only authority. It's the final authority, but it's not the only authority. Wisdom is still an authority that we should listen to. Reason, like common sense, is an authority that we should listen to. Religious personal experience is an authority that matters and impacts us. That's true. And hear me on this. Tradition is an authority. Tradition of the church is an authority. But they should all have subordinate roles to Scripture. Does that make sense? So if my wisdom or my reason or my experience or my tradition contradicts scripture, scripture always wins. What it also doesn't mean is kind of this thought of me and the Bible, right? Well, preacher, all I need is my Bible. I don't need you to ever talk to me or tell me what to do because I have everything I need right here in front of me. So it's me and the Bible and my, you know, my shotgun. I'm being stupid here, but you get what I'm saying. We've all met people like this, right? We're not talking me and my Bible. Theology is meant to be done in community. We are a church community, and we are meant to study the Bible together. The body has many parts. Okay, so we've been talking about Scripture a lot. Let's read a couple more. Um, Well, first off, you know, Matthew 4, 1 and following what we just read. What are some things that we learn from that? What are things that we can gain from that? First off, we see that Scripture is authoritative, right? Jesus appeals to it as authoritative and powerful. We also know that it's trustworthy. So in his weakness, Jesus didn't lean on other things. He leaned on the Word of God as trustworthy. We also know that it's helpful in defense against temptation and helpful in defense against lies. And so we see Scripture lifted up by Jesus in Matthew chapter 4. Now I'm going to read a passage out of 2 Peter chapter 3, starting in verse 14. Peter says this, Therefore, beloved, since you're waiting for these, be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish and at peace. And count the patience of our Lord... "...as salvation, just as our brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given to him, as he does in all his letters when he speaks in them on these matters. There are some things in them that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction as they do the other scriptures. You, therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, take care that you're not carried away with the error of lawless people and lose your own stability." but grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To him be the glory, both now and in the day of eternity. Amen. So what do we learn here? What do we learn here? We have Peter teaching a church, and he mentions his brother Paul, right? his brother in the Lord Paul, who also has written scripture. And we see that Peter himself viewed the emerging writers of the apostles as scripture. So, the letters that we have from Paul, 1 Thessalonians, the series that we've just gone through, 2 Thessalonians, the series we're about to go into, Peter himself viewed those emerging writings of the apostles as scripture. And notice what else he said. Some scripture's hard to understand, right? Paul's confusing. He uses big words and complex sentences. And so, Peter, an apostle, looks at what Paul's written and is like, I think this is the word of God, but it's hard. It's hard to understand. Therefore it must be studied closely. And we also learned that in Peter's day people were already twisting the teachings of Scripture in dangerous ways. And so it was the responsibility of Christians to watch their doctrine closely. Peter looked at this church and he said there are false teachers. You have to watch what you believe. You have to watch what you believe. If you don't you're going to get taken for a ride, and you're going to end up in destruction. Another passage that we read last week, if you remember, Jude 3 and 4, says this, Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord Jesus Christ. So what do we learn here? We get confirmation that false teachers and teachings would weasel their way into the church. The apostles looked at the church and said, heresy is coming. False teachings about Jesus is coming. It's coming, guys. Into your church. That they would oppose what Jude calls the faith once for all delivered. So in the teachings of the apostles, we had the entire faith. All of Christianity. Do you get what I'm saying by that? The New Testament, which is our written record of the teaching of the apostles, has everything Christians need to know about what it is to be a Christian and act like a Christian and live like a Christian. It's the faith once for all. If you live in Nicaragua, the New Testament, the teaching of the apostles is all you need. If you live here, it's all you need. If you lived a hundred years ago, it's all you need. And if you live a thousand years from now, it's all you need. It's the faith once for all delivered. It had been delivered in its completed state. And the church is called to contend for it. That faith that they received, they were to fight for. Because some things are worth fighting for. Let's do one more passage. This is Acts 17, verses 10 to 12. It says this, The brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea, and when they arrived, they went to the Jewish synagogue. Now these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica, and they received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. Many of them therefore believed, with not a few Greek women of high standing as well as men. So what do we see here? We see that the way that God's people investigate doctrine, the way that they check what's true and what's not, is by digging into scripture. So whenever the early church received a letter and they thought, huh, I wonder if this is actually from an apostle or not. Is this actually true? They were to dig into the scripture, to know the scripture well enough to recognize if it was a fake. The way that God's people investigate doctrine is by digging into the word. And isn't that what Jesus did? Like as as Satan presented false doctrine to him, as he quoted scripture to him, isn't that what Christ did? He knew the scriptures well enough. They had soaked down into his heart deep enough that whenever he was confronted with something that wasn't true, something that was damning and full of destruction... For him and for the world. He was able to say. It is written. He was able to answer lies with the truth. The sure truth. So what do we do with this? What do we do with this doctrine today? What does it mean for us? It means that every single one of us. Me and rich pastors, um, lay leaders in the church, people just checking out chorus. It's our job to be dedicated to the word as the final arbiter in all doctrine. So if I preach something to you, it's your responsibility, brother, to dig in the word. If you're sitting around the water cooler at work and you're debating theology it's your responsibility to know the word together we keep the faith by being dedicated to the word as the final arbiter in our doctrine so that there are times whenever like rich and i'll disagree like on a little bit like a little passage of scripture or something One of us is wrong, or both of us, right? But we agree that the Scripture is true, right? That it is the final arbiter. So there are some barriers to this in us. There's the pull of tradition. So if we as a church get stuck in our ways, we like what we do, we have a tradition that we think of as good, there's the pull of that tradition. So that whenever the Scripture confronts the way that we act, well, is the way we always done it, Right? I have heard a little old uh, old lady sitting in a church pew look at my pastor and says, well, I know that's what the Bible says, but that's not what our church does, right? She was trying to protect the church. Like, she wasn't trying to be mean, but somehow something got twisted in there. There's the pull of tradition. This is the way that we do it. On the other side, there's the pull of the new, Some of us don't care about tradition, but we get real excited when something new happens. So like if I came up here and started lighting candles, some of you would be like, why is Tony lighting candles, right? And some of you would be like, oh, we're lighting candles now. This is fun. This is interesting. I like this, right? Some of us are so attracted to the new that we don't know when to stop, right? If it's new, it must be good. It's exciting. It's powerful, And the pull of the new can take our eyes away from Scripture as the final authority. There's also the pull of community. Um, Half my family is Catholic. And the other half, mostly nominal Christians on the Protestant side of things. Family reunions are hard. Right? So I show up and they're like, Tony, what do you do? Oh, I'm a pastor. Pastor? Right? And, you know, and they look over at brother so-and-so who's a priest at a local parish and he's like, what do you think about your, you know, cousin over here being a pastor? That's awkward. That's weird. Um, I had to, <laughs> I, had a, I had a cousin get married Catholic wedding I love my cousin I came to the wedding and they they came to me and said we want you to read a scripture right and as you walk up bow to the altar because that's where the Eucharist is housed Like my doctrine says that bread ain't Jesus and you want me to bow to it like that's an awkward discussion to have with a priest in a Catholic church With your cousin standing nearby saying, just do the bow, right? The pull of community can be tough in this. And it's not just the community, for those of us who have split families like my own, um, those who are raised in secular communities or in Mormon communities or in other households of other religions, it's the same thing, right? Right? And you can say, I believe what you're saying, preacher. I believe the scripture as I see it, but like my family, ugh, I have to go home to my family. People that used to come to my shop won't come to my shop anymore. And tragically, the pull of community can take our eyes off of scripture as the final arbiter in our doctrine. Finally, there's the pull of comfort. It's hard to dig into this stuff, and it's awkward to dig into this stuff, and it's just easier not to. It's easier not to read your Bible, it's easier to ignore the preacher every Sunday, it's easier to plead ignorance and never address the questions. And it can help us to keep our eyes off of the scripture. So how do we break through? Some of us break through because of our conviction. We're just those truth people. I want to know the truth. I want to tell the truth. I know black and white. Like, you know, you know who you are, right? Some of us, through sheer conviction, will be able to break through those barriers. For some of us, it'll come in the form of confrontation, right? We get confronted by someone who says, well, why do you believe what you believe? And the discomfort forces us to learn. For others of us, it's crisis or disillusionment. We're raised outside the church or we're raised under false teaching. And one of those days, something happens in in our lives that make us realize, huh, maybe I can't trust what I was taught. Maybe I can't. Look at all the happy people willing to trust, but they've not been through what I've just been through. (laughs) How do I trust? Maybe that breaks through and it forces us to look to scriptures. But God does something to help that work in us, and we have to move forward into building ourselves up. So as we come to a close, I'll say again, Reformation is a team effort. It's something that we as the church do. We all have to be involved in scripture. We all have to care about it. We all have to appeal to it. It has to be held up as the center for all of us if the church is to be reformed. If we're not going to fall into corruption, it will be because we work together as we look to the scriptures. God will call some of you into leadership positions where you will need to study deeper, learn Greek, learn how to teach, learn how to dig into deep books that make some of us very, very bored, right? Right? God will, come, will call some of you into leadership, but not all of you, not all of you, some of, some of you will need to dig into this just in your exposure to the Word over time. You're not called to be a pastor, you're not called to be a professor, but you are as a Christian called to take advantage of the opportunities to get in the Word, whether that's the Bible in your hand or whether that's being willing to sit and be exposed to the preaching of the word week after week after week. So that over time, in community, the word is built into you. And you don't have to have a doctorate to know whenever a false teaching is brought up because you've been in the word long enough that it just doesn't smell right. In any case, this whole thing's going to be messy. The church has been a messy place for 2,000 years. It will continue to be a messy place for another 2,000 years if Jesus doesn't come back sooner because of our own pride, because of the work of the devil. It's a messy work to constantly reform, to constantly be willing to change our practices in light of Scripture. But friends, family, it is worth it. It is worth it for the good of souls, for the love of our family and our friends and our neighbors. It's worth it. Jesus really is out there saving people today. The Martin Luthers of the world who are messed up through guilt and fear and frustration and family problems. God is out there reaching out to people today through the gospel of Jesus, calling them to repent and to love, and to experience grace. The fighting we do to call other Christians to see the Bible as the final arbiter of all doctrine is worth it. For the good of souls, for the good of our world, and for the good of our city. If you pray with me. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the grace that you've shown us.